just say uh, on behalf of our church, am I on? You got me? Can you hear me? I don't think it's on. Uh, anyway, you can use this if you want. Anyway, I want to say thank you very much from the story, uh, from our church family to the Stony Brook School, the Corral and the Strings. Is it? No, it's not the Corral, it's the Chamber Singers. Thank you. Uh, we thank you very much for coming and, and ministering the music to us today. Let's bow together in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we who live in a time in which we're so busy and we're so inundated with information and with so much that is um, sort of absorbing things in full capacity every day. It's so full. We pray, Lord, that in these moments we have together that you would help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of Christ, the one who is the source and the true treasure of joy. We pray that we might find our delight in him today as we look into your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. The great painters down through the years are those who have now have their masterpieces on the walls of various museums around the world. And I must confess to you that I have a favorite. Uh, my favorite anytime I go to an art museum is I try to make my way through uh, the ones that I find uh, fascinating, but I always end up, if they ever have in their collection a Rembrandt, I stand there for a while and I just take it all in. Rembrandt, the Dutch painter uh, from the 17th century, incorporated a vivid contrast in his style of mostly darkness and darkened colors around the perimeter, and then usually somewhere in the center of his masterpieces he painted, there is the contrast of this light. Uh, I don't know if you've seen a number of his paintings, but I'm thinking of the Adoration of the Shepherds was one that I checked online just to see it again, the same uh, pattern in which the style which he developed against the darkened background, the subjects appear as if they have their own inner source of light. How many of you have seen a Rembrandt? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, a number of you. If we were to apply an artistic style to the gospel writer Luke, that's a big stretch, but follow me here, we could say that he incorporated a compelling contrast similarly to this theme of darkness and light. I want you to take your Bible, if you don't have one, there's a pew Bible there in front of you, and find your way to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, which is page 1212 in your pew Bible. And I want to just take a few moments and just illustrate this for you, just to give you some samples and, and examples of what I'm talking about with how Luke points out against the dark background there are brilliant beams of light that shine through. First sentence of Luke's Gospel, after the introduction of his book. Okay, so we're now in verse 5 of chapter 1, Luke's Gospel. We read these words. In the days of Herod, king of Judah. Now, most of us just keep right on going and don't think much about that. But if you know anything about Herod, 
those are not pleasant words for first century residents of Israel. The nation of Israel was occupied by a foreign power. Years of war had taken their toll. Paying taxes to a foreign power is a heavy burden to bear. It had been over 400 years since a prophet of God had spoken. There were 400 years of silence. It had been a long time since someone had said, Thus says the Lord. And the God that was worshipped by the Israelites was mocked by the Roman soldiers and widely ridiculed. They, they prided themselves on their multitudinous gods that they worshipped and revered, including, obviously, Caesar. Even more distressing was that nothing seemed as if it was ever going to change. The weak members of that occupied nation had no deliverers and no defenders. Who would rescue the poor? Who would rescue the widows? Who would rescue the orphans, the sick, the outcast? Those who lived in the shadows. And that's why my first point for you this morning is I want you to see the theme, the theme that Luke weaves into or paints into his gospel, the abundant joy that comes in response to Jesus Christ's coming. Into this dark and dismal situation, the light of God's revelation began to dispel the darkness. We read that God sent an angelic messenger there in chapter 1 of Luke. And he sends it to a priest by the name of Zecharias. And he brings good news to this gentleman, an older gentleman. He and his wife have been praying for a long time. And he hears from this angel that their prayers have been heard. They would have a son. They've been trying to have a child all their life. And the prophet, the son who is to be born is to be a prophet who prepares the way for the Lord. Something exciting is happening here. And notice verse 13 to 15. Chapter 1 of Luke. They were promised, this is Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. They were promised what? Joy and gladness. Anybody who has a child, after waiting a whole lifetime, and you assume that day would never come, I think it's almost an understatement of joy and gladness. They will have joy and gladness. Many would rejoice at their baby's birth. Here are the beams of light beginning to shine in the darkness. Follow the same theme here. Six months later, we have another highly unusual occurrence in which an angel appears to a young woman betrothed to a carpenter in this small, out-of-the-way, small village of Nazareth. And Mary was promised that she would miraculously conceive a son and that her firstborn would be called Holy Offspring, Son of God. And against the backdrop, as we said previous last two Sundays, we sort of touched on this theme of how that news is going to impact Mary's life. Because what that means is scandal. What that means is shame. Because it appears as if she's been unfaithful to to the one to whom she's betrothed, Joseph. Despite all that, despite the fact that it's very likely she's going to be sent away by him and divorced from him, look at her response, verse 46, 47, chapter 1. Mary's response, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced, not in her circumstances, because those are going to be really complicated. (laughs) She doesn't fully understand them anyway. 
my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. As Mary celebrated the promise and the power of God, Luke, his brushstrokes now have painted all sorts of beams of joy that are diffusing the gloom and the despair and the darkness of hopelessness around individuals within the first chapter of his gospel. As we move to chapter 2, notice that the shadows of darkness are once again evident because we hear that and read that there is this Roman decree that means nothing to us, but that's, believe me, that's to upset your world big time when the big honchos in Rome say, okay, everybody, we're going to count out the tallies and the totals of the census. You need to go back to your birthplace, and we're going to keep track of who's who and who's what, and we're going to get the money we need from you. That means that Joseph and Mary, these poor Uh, poorly educated individuals now have to travel with other people, leave their means of making a living and surviving and go down toward Bethlehem. Despite the fact that Mary was approaching her due date, she goes anyway, has to, is required to, and while they're in Bethlehem, she gives birth in the less than desirable accommodations. And in this situation, God, again, through angelic messengers, surrounding by this brilliant light, we read in verses 9 and 10, speaks words of an incredibly encouraging message to this poor, uneducated shepherds now, who are going to be also having light of joy brought into their experience. And the angel says, verses 10 and 11, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This theme of good news and rejoicing is carried by Luke throughout his gospel. I don't have time to trace it all the way through the gospel. That would be a fascinating study. I'd encourage you to think about that, doing that sometime. But let's just say this. Let's fast forward and turn to the last chapter of his book, chapter 24, page 1258 in your pew Bible. If you look at chapter 24, fascinating the way this is designed here because Jesus has been put to death and there's talk now that Jesus may actually be alive. It has not been substantiated by a number of people, but there is talk going around that some people have seen Jesus and he's alive. Well, some people think, no way, that can't be. And so they're walking around and they're feeling sad, including these two individuals who are on the road to Emmaus. Verse 17, it specifically says they're looking sad. There's a sense of shadows that are now enclosing their world. As what they hoped would happen, their hopes have been dashed. The one they were hoping would throw off the Romans didn't do it, and here he was put to death by the Romans. So I want you to look now at how Jesus comes to them. I won't have time to go through the whole thing. He explains to them with understanding of the scriptures. Jesus explains how this is all part of God's plan. It's all working out, showing that all these things were speaking of him. And then notice, after he gives them further encouragement, gives them a sense of commission as to what they're to be doing, look at verse 51 of chapter 24. While Jesus was blessing them, he departed from them. And they returned to Jerusalem. This is the last verse. They returned to Jerusalem. These are the followers of Jesus. With great joy. 
Now, am I reading something into the text, or is that not indeed a theme that is woven, a, 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 a color, if you will, that has now been used by Luke painting in that kind of contrasting darkness with the light, resulting in great joy. They were continually in the temple praising God. It's like bookends. The opening paragraph, the last paragraph, speaking and highlighting of the theme of joy as a result of Christ coming for the followers of this Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, there are many reasons why people in these particular examples had reasons to be disheartened, reasons to be discouraged. But Luke is emphasizing that God's actions in sending Jesus and his promises provided a basis for joy. See, the master painter Rembrandt was able to create the appearance of light, almost like coming out of his two-dimensional canvas just by combining a few different kinds of paints. And by the way, he only used a very few number of colors of paint in his style. And with his brush marks, he would make this light as it were coming off that canvas. In a sense, the Gospel of Luke, it is God who is the master illuminator. It is God who is bringing forth joyous responses from people who otherwise, naturally, would have remained hopeless, would have been full of darkened hearts. And the joy which accomplished, which accompanied the announcement of Jesus' coming in his life and ministry must be attributed to the heart-transforming work of the Spirit of God who is taking truth and applying it into the lives of people who are grappling with and seeing new insights into the greatness of God. Now, I realize all of us live in a dark world. The longer I live, the more darkness I see. Darkness where there is sin and where sorrow reigns. The shadows of guilt and suffering and injustice and abuse and violence, perversion, greed, poverty, War and selfishness and corruption darken our everyday life. Don't you feel it? I feel it. I see it. I experience it. In the midst of these outward forms of gloom and darkness, many people are turning to some substance that can give me a rush. Something to give me a lightness in my soul because of the gloom of the pain of living in this fallen world. So some people use legal, some people use illegal narcotics to lift their spirits, to lessen the heartache. Other people seek to escape the pain and the darkness through sex, casual sex, or through the fantasy world of pornography. Others go shopping, trying to overindulge and obtaining more and more of the better and better and the best and the best to get a rush out of something new, something that's fashionable, something that's stylish, something that's shiny and technologically impressive. Others of us 
turn to flavorful food and find ourselves indulging in that which we consume as trying to somehow lighten, bring light and joy into darkened emotions and thoughts. My friend, none of the things, of these things I've mentioned, none of them can produce truly soul-satisfying and long-lasting joy. They may provide a momentary change in the way we feel or sensations that we go on. I don't deny that there's pleasures involved in those things. But we're talking about joy, which has to do with our way of thinking and the way in which we conceive of our situation in life, the beliefs in our hearts. And joy, my friend, is from God. The only place we will find joy is in God. Paul prayed to the Romans and prayed for them with these words. Paul said, I pray that the God of hope will fill all of you who are reading this letter with joy and with peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus who said in John chapter 15, that these things he said, I have spoken to you, that my joy, what I experience, and what I have known as joy every day of my existence, which has been from eternity, I've always existed, you may have my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. How many of us know full joy in this darkened world? One reason Jesus came was to spread to his people a supernatural joy which he had enjoyed from all eternity. And the joy described in the Bible cannot be known apart from God. You see, there are those in our world who are naturalists, who operate in life and who interpret life from the perspective and through the lens of assuming that matter is all that exists. And that the only thing that explains how the world is the way it is, is to understand there is no God. It is merely a product of random collision of atoms and molecules over vast eons of time. My friend, if that is the belief system that you may have, or anyone who has that belief system, there is no reason to rejoice at all about anything. Joy is to be found in Jesus Christ. It is to be found in His promises. It is to be found in His person. It is to be found in His provision and what He has accomplished on our behalf and in His presence. I want to take just our remaining moments here this morning and I want us to focus on Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2. I just want to unpack them for us just for just a brief moment here. Consider three reasons why Jesus' coming provides great abundant joy. I want to reflect upon the news that was given to the shepherds. So if we read in those 10 and 11, the angel said, Don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The reasons for abundant joy in response to Jesus coming. The first is there's good news that Jesus came to save. He came to save. 
Of the four gospel writers, Luke includes more often than the others the words Savior or save or salvation. Jesus was sent by the Father to rescue sinners from the curse of sin and ultimately from the wrath that God will one day unleash upon impenitent, unredeemed, and the ungodly. And only Jesus is qualified to deliver those who live under the curse of sin. Because Jesus remained sinless, he did not succumb to sin's power as all of us have and do. Jesus fulfilled the law. He did what Israel failed to do. He did what Adam failed to do. And it is John the Baptist who saw Jesus. Again, this is his cousin, the one that we read about earlier, who was told that Zechariah would have a child. John the Baptist, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, looked at him and said, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. And as a substitute, he provided atonement on behalf of those who break the laws of God. And Jesus saves in three ways. Think about this for a moment. Jesus saves in terms of past time. To those who come to him and repent and believe and trust in what he did for them, Jesus saved his people from the penalty of sin. They are given full and complete forgiveness. But his saving also is present tense. He continues to save his people now from the power of sin that grips us and oftentimes encourages us to walk in darkness. And then one day Jesus will ultimately save his people from the presence of sin as sin will finally be removed from us and we'll give a redeemed body. And the biblical writers emphasized the one reason that Jesus produces joy because of his work as a substitute The Bible says again and again, Christ died for us. The word for is a special Greek word in which it means on behalf of. And so again and again, Christ died on our behalf. Christ rose on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.15 verse 21. Only Jesus can liberate us from the corruption that's due to the fall. I want to read one other verse that talks about how God has saved in Christ. Listen to what he says in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, the God who saves, appeared. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, He's talking about the powerful work of God in changing our hearts and bringing about new desires, giving us a new nature, adopting us, not on something that we do, but on what He has done through Jesus Christ. It is God our Savior. Jesus came to be more than merely compassionate. Jesus came not merely just to be a good listener or to have high levels of empathy. He is the Savior of sinners. And His saving work is involves restoring us to a position in which we are before God and transforming us so that we are people who are now image bearers who are being restored to what we originally were designed to be, worshipers of the one who made us. God designed us and Jesus indeed 
is the one who transforms us. Let me ask you, does your heart rejoice in Jesus, the Savior who was born? Where do you turn for joy in your life? Do you try to improve yourself? Do you constantly try to say, well, if I could just do a couple more things, then maybe I can enjoy God more? And you put much emphasis on your performance of being a better person, of somehow improving some area of your life. You know it's not right, and you're trying to improve that. My friend, you'll never find joy in trying to be a better person. Joy is found in Christ, who has done for you what you cannot do, who has taken the debt of what you owe to God, paid it in full, and he gives you the free gift of adoption and the privileges of being a son of God. He loves you, and he has given you what you'll never be able to earn for yourself, righteousness on the basis of faith. So I wonder if you tell yourself that you don't deserve to be a child of God because you say and do things that you know are not right. And so you sort of live your life without joy, trying to just make it through this world, trying to deal with the darkness as best you can, looking for something that's going to bring a little light into your life. But you never really turn to God because you realize God is just, there's too much guilt stuff. My friend, look at Christ. Christ is the one who imparts life, the life of God within you. He's the one who heals, lifts, transforms. He's the one who adopts and renews and indeed loves us. Come to him. You'll find joy in Christ. Secondly, letter B, I want us to look at the good news that came that Jesus, who came, came as Lord. You say, yeah, well, this Jesus, he may have done some great things, but look at the world, it's all screwed up. The reason to rejoice is directly related to Jesus' authority and power over the forces of evil. Jesus is the only one who can save his people from their nemesis, the evil one, Satan. Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he overcame Satan's greatest weapon. That was death. And Jesus, all-conquering king, he is an invincible Lord over all. And he broke the power of demonic forces. He broke the power of satanic forces that still operate in this world, but they are on a leash. Their days are numbered. His kingdom is advancing. He will bring about justice. He will throw off the different forces of oppression. And he will prevail over the forces of wickedness. And his kingdom cannot be overturned. And so that's the reason, my friend, we rejoice not in what's happening in the world in general or in our circumstances because the world never becomes what we want it to be until Christ returns. We long for heaven on earth. The fact is, we rejoice in the Lord. Lord meaning what? The Master. 
the King of Kings. And Lord, actually in Luke, if you look at the first two chapters, almost every instance of the translated word Lord is an allusion to Lord, meaning God in the Old Testament. The one who came is God in flesh. So Jesus warned his disciples only hours before he was crucified that those who opposed him, those who hated him, those who were ready to destroy him and who schemed and connived and found ways to somehow get around the system and bring about the most unjust trial that's ever been held in this world, that those who opposed him were about to be filled with joy and celebration and gladness of heart because it would appear as if their scheme to destroy Jesus, to have him put to death, to remove him from the, the scene of causing so many difficulties for those in power and political and spiritual forces of the first century. Acts 16.20, Jesus said to his disciples, listen, it's going to appear as if they've won the victory. It's going to appear as if the forces of evil and all darkness now has come and enclosed the whole world and there's no more hope when he was put to death. But he says, listen, it's just the opposite is going to take place. For you, he says, the reaction is going to be mourning and deep sorrow, which indeed they experienced when they saw the one they had their hopes in being treated in this way. And he never did get off that cross until he came down as a dead body. The darkness of injustice would be pitch black at that moment. And when Jesus died, it would be easy to conclude that every promise that he made was null and void and that anybody who would think about following him or trusting him would be a complete idiot. Because it looked as if he had been overcome by the forces of evil. Look at John 16, verse 20. You ought to find this one. Look it up. This is amazing what Jesus said. John 16, 20. Jesus says, your sorrow will be what? Turn to joy. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman, he compares now to an illustration of a woman who's expecting. I've never given birth to a woman. Sorry, never given birth to, never given birth to a child. I am not a woman is what I meant to say. I've held the hand of my dear wife when she was in the travail of labor. And let me tell you, there's a lot of suffering going on there. And they tell you in the childbirth classes, there comes a moment in labor in which it will be very easy for the one in labor to want to just give up. The pain is so bad and it's been going on so long and intensifying it, getting worse and worse. The person just says, oh, I can't deal with it. And they forget the focus. They forget what you're trying to do. You forget all the steps and whatever. And that's what Jesus sort of implies here as he talks about the illustration of a woman giving birth. He says, whenever a woman is in travail, when she's in the, 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 the awful struggle of labor, she has sorrow. She's like, why do I have to go through all this? It's awful. She remembers the anguish, however, but when she gives birth to the child, sorry, she remembers the anguish no more. <laughs> Once that child is born, wow, all the suffering, I forget about it. Look at this precious little child. For joy, a child has been born into the world. Therefore, he says to his disciples, you too now have joy. Don't we have joy? No, sorry. You too now have sorrow. Don't we have sorrow in our world? 
You better believe it. Jesus is not promising you a world in which you never have tears and pain and anguish and sorrow. But notice this. He says, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. That's the promise of joy, not found in them and their performance or their abilities or their cleverness. It's found in Jesus Christ. He says, no one takes your joy away from you. I love that promise. Only a king of kings, only the one who triumphs over evil can make that promise and make it stick. The infant Jesus, so weak and helpless, wrapped in strips of cloth and placed in a feeding trough, was and is today considered insignificant and irrelevant in the eyes of the power brokers of our world. And yet the baby that was born in Bethlehem was what? The Lord, God in human flesh. And joy comes to those who are confident Jesus is able to keep his promises. Joyous are those who believe that Jesus' kingdom will prevail. Joyous are those who are confident that evil will not prevail ultimately and that his will will be done on earth someday as it's being done in heaven. My friend, there is joy, one who can give joy. There is light that is penetrating through the darkness of our world. It is found in Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Have you found joy in Christ? Is he your joy? Are you hopeful of what Christ can accomplish in the midst of what's wrong in our world, all of the injustice, all the suffering? Are you trusting that God is at work, that he can work all things together for good to those who love him and call it according to his purpose? Thirdly and quickly, I want us to, look, to consider one more thought here, the good news that Jesus came for all the people. We can't overlook this because Jesus did not come merely for those who owned large portions of property. He did not just come for those who had attained the highest level of education. His mission as Savior was not directed merely at those who spoke the language or shared his culture. Jesus came as a Savior for all the people. As you read through the Gospel of Luke, it is a fascinating study to, to, to think through the kinds of people and the types of people that Jesus sought out and ministered to. It's the nobodies. It's the outcasts. It's the outsiders. It's many of those who are on the, 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 uh, the fringe. They existed on the fringe of religious society. And they were always at an arm's distance and very far away from the religious leaders who avoided those kinds of people. And it was those people who were the, on the fringe were making their way into the kingdom. It's fascinating. The blind, the lepers, the deaf, the poor received the good news of the kingdom. And the despised and the corrupt officials, the greedy officials, who no one ever thought anything good could come out of these people, were ones who were finding forgiveness and restoration and healing. It is Luke who records Jesus with three parables, chapter 15, in which he spells out very clearly and dramatically the illustration that Jesus receives sinful people who repent. And he celebrates that. 
There's joy in heaven when people repent and come to Christ. Verse 7, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus said that he came not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. The sick need physicians. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so the Apostle John numerous times wrote in his writings, in his gospel, in his epistles, he said, the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him, whoever you are, whatever you have done, whatever struggles you are facing, no matter what kind of thoughts you've had about God in your moments of anguish and heartache, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so my question to you, my friend, is this morning, we're about ready to sing the hymn, Joy to the World. Has joy come into your world through Jesus Christ? I pray that's so. Let's pray. Our merciful and compassionate God, we thank you that we've had opportunity today to look at the brush strokes of grace and truth and to see in the writings of Luke, the physician, that in Jesus Christ we can have joy, abundant joy, joy inexpressible, long-lasting joy, true joy, heart-changing joy. Lord, we live in a world in which so many of us could write a book on all that's wrong in our lives, all that we've had to endure that is part of the fall. And many of us, Lord, have made various choices and complicated the things we've already dealing with in difficulty life. Many of us have foolishly gone our own way Lord, help us, I pray today, to see that there is good news of great joy to all of us. Every single one of us can find good news in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that even today, you would work by your Spirit to bring the light of joy into the darkness of every heart full of shadows, heart full of hopelessness, hearts full of selfishness, hearts filled with the shadows of our own gloomy perspective on life. Help us, Lord, to see that Jesus Christ has broken into this world in a saving, wonderful work of redemption to bring the light of joy to every single heart. We pray, Lord, that you might do this work in each of us today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.